seat. We will we'll, we'll jump in. If you have a Bible that you need to open up, uh, go ahead and get that out and open it up. If you have a Bible that you need to power on, uh, you can do that as well. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8, just the first four verses of that this morning. And as you get uh, situated and settled in, uh, I'm going to, to pray for our time together. God, we thank you for this morning, the chance to gather together as a body of believers uh, and worship you. God, not just to sing, though we're certainly thankful for the chance to be together and to do that, God, but to worship you in your word and to worship you in fellowship and to worship you in song. Uh, God, I pray that everything that we do this morning uh, would be directed toward and geared toward praising you, thanking you for who you are and what you've done in our lives and all that that means for us. God, I pray that our time together would be Um, God, one that is filled with hearts and minds and lives that long to live in light of the gospel. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be here among us and take your word and press it into our hearts. I pray that as we sing, Lord, that our hearts wouldn't be distant and detached from the words that we're saying, but instead that our Words, God, would be the embodiment of the cries of our hearts in response to who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, I pray that as we engage with one another, that our fellowship would be filled with a unity and a peace and a mutual encouragement uh, under the name of the gospel. Lord, would you be glorified in all that we do here during our time together? God, would your spirit work powerfully in our hearts and in our lives, God, so that you would be glorified in all that we do outside of here as well? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, There's an author named John Bunyan. He wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, He wrote a number of other things, including a very succinct, short, four-line poem. And that poem uh, perfectly captures where we are in Romans right now. Coming out of Romans chapter 7, going into Romans chapter 8. These are the four words that John Bunyan penned. He said, run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Romans 7, particularly what we were looking at last week, verses 14 to 25, is the embodiment of those first two lines. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. If we look toward the law and the commands of Scripture to be that which is ultimately going to sanctify us, we will have frustrating, futile experiences like Paul describes in Romans 7, 14 to 25. On the other hand, when Paul goes into Romans chapter 8, he talks about the gospel and he talks about the wings that we have, specifically through the Holy Spirit. So let me just give a little bit of context for where we are right now. In Romans chapter 7, Paul mentions the law 27, or Romans chapter 7, he mentions the law 27 different times. Romans 7 only has 25 verses in it. And yet 27 times he talks about the law with the purpose of saying, here's what the law cannot be in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. He talks about the futility of life lived with this indwelling flesh and indwelling sin. He talks about something that we can't do. 
Specifically, we cannot sanctify ourselves via our own willpower and the ability to obey the commands of Scripture, to obey the law. Then he goes into what we have as Romans chapter 8. There's a therefore in Romans 8.1 that separates one section of the letter of Romans from another. And on the backside of that therefore, he mentions the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by name 19 times. Rather than talking about the futility of indwelling sin, he talks about the force and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Rather than talking about something we cannot do, that is sanctify ourselves by obeying the law, he talks about something that we can do, which is to be sanctified by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Paul's focus shifts entirely and it hinges around that word, therefore, in Romans chapter 8. And so as we jump into Romans 8, verses 1 through 4, our focus is going to shift as well. Away from what we can't do and into what the Spirit does inside of us. That's where we're headed. I'm going to start with just the first two verses of Romans chapter 8. It says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. If you've received the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ, you have two things here that Paul mentions in verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 8. First, no condemnation. That is a gift to every single follower of Jesus Christ, to every single person who's received God's grace by faith in Jesus and his work on the cross. You have no condemnation. No condemnation before the Lord. That means you're going to stand one day in the presence of God at your moment of judgment and there will be no condemnation. Whereas Paul has talked at length in Romans here about the wrath that all of humanity deserves. We deserve to be condemned because of our sin. He says, you will not have any of that because of the grace of God received through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation before the Lord. But there's a second piece of that no condemnation statement that I think is equally important. It's something that we need to be able to grasp as followers of Jesus Christ. We also don't have condemnation before ourselves for our sin. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for the consequences of your sin on the cross. He also made it so that you don't need to bear the shame associated with your sin in your own heart and in your own life. Both of those are significant. When you stand before the Lord at your moment of judgment, not only are you not going to be condemned by him, you will be so covered by the grace and the life and the righteousness of Jesus Christ that I don't think you're going to condemn yourself in his presence either. You shouldn't condemn yourself now. And yet Paul has been at pains since Romans chapter six to make very clear that just because there's no condemnation before the Lord or before ourselves for our sin, it doesn't mean that as followers of Jesus Christ, we just sweep our sin under the rug and pretend as though it doesn't exist. Paul says we can't do that. It is impossible for us to live and to operate and to think that way as believers, as followers of Christ. And so there's got to be something else that takes place in the life of the believer, and that's this process of sanctification. He's given this long conversation about the law in Romans chapter 7, and now he declares in verse 2 of Romans chapter 8 that you've got no condemnation and you have freedom. You have freedom from the law of sin and death thanks to the law of the spirit of life. You've been freed from the law of sin and death by the law of the spirit of life. 
Those are the two things that every single believer in this room has. No condemnation before the Lord, freedom from the law of sin and death. And we have both of those things because of something that God has done, something that he did. Read with me in verses three and four. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In two sentences, Paul gives an incredibly succinct explanation of the gospel. It starts at the beginning of uh, Romans 8 verse 3 and The power of this is in the last two words in my translation. God did. When we think about the gospel, we have to keep in mind that it is an act of God by his grace that we receive through faith. He did it. That's statement number one. But then he goes on to lay out five other tenets there that fall within the gospel. In one sentence, beginning in the middle of Romans chapter 3, working all the way through the end of our Romans 8, verse 3, working all the way to the end of Romans 8, verse 4, Paul lays out the gospel. It's what he's been explaining throughout all of Romans up to this point, and he just summarizes it here. He says, He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I'm going to take these out of order from where they appear to us here and put them into the order that we normally think about. The gospel is that God sent his son out of heaven, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, sent into the world in a particular manner, in a particular way. Paul says that he was sent in the likeness of human flesh. That's the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus Christ in all of his divinity did not relinquish any of that, but took upon himself sinful flesh, 100% God, 100% human. And so the wording here is important. Paul wants to dispel either thought that maybe he wasn't all the way human or he wasn't fully divine. And so he says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't just come in the likeness of flesh. That would be to leave open the possibility that he only appeared to be human. He just looked like he had flesh on. That's not true. Romans 8, 3 also doesn't say that he just came in sinful flesh. That would mean that like all of humanity, that he was fallen, that he sinned. Instead, Paul uses the phrase, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus' humanity was real, and yet he was sinless simultaneously. Fully God, fully human. Sent into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. Sent to the cross for that purpose. Sin demanded a certain kind of payment. And Jesus Christ, was the Son, was sent into the world in the likeness of human flesh in order to be that offering on our behalf. And as such, the beginning of this sentence says, he condemned sin. We have no condemnation before the Lord because the Son was condemned in our place. We have no condemnation before the Lord because in the Son's sinlessness, sin was conquered. That is our justification. The Son 
sent into the world in the likeness of human flesh as a sin offering and condemning sin. We are saved, we are forgiven by the grace of God through faith in that act. And yet that's not where Paul's explanation of the gospel ends because he goes on in verse four. In order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The end point of Paul's explanation of the gospel is different than what we would normally think it to be. If I were to ask a room full of of people such as this, why did Jesus die on the cross? Our immediate, joyful, potentially shouted answer would be for our forgiveness. And that's absolutely true. But Paul says it doesn't end there. It's not just our forgiveness, but also our sanctification. That the work of Jesus Christ on the cross secured our forgiveness, our justification, but it also secured our sanctification. All of this that Paul describes in two sentences in Romans 8, 3, and 4 happened in order that God might have a people and they might be made holy. We read this and we're surprised to see the gospel laid out so gloriously and then to have it end not only with our justification, but also with our sanctification. One of the things I love about this two-sentence stretch of Romans is that it puts the entire Trinity on display. The Father sending the Son into the world for our justification and giving us the Spirit in order to empower Christ followers for sanctification. This is the way John Stott says that. He says, our freedom from the law is not freedom to disobey it. On the contrary, the law obedience of the people of God is so important to God that he gave, or he sent his son to die for us and his spirit to live in us in order to secure it. Holiness is the fruit of Trinitarian grace, the father sending the son into the world and his spirit into our hearts. That is the meaning of Romans 8, 1 through 4. You don't have condemnation. You have freedom. It was secured for you because God did it in sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering that condemned sin in order that you might be able to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 1 through 4. What, is the, what are the implications of that? What does that mean for us tangibly? What's the takeaway for us. This is the reason why we needed to stop in Romans 8, 4 this morning and only work with a few verses here. Romans chapter 8 is going to go on to lay out a, a number of different roles that the Holy Spirit plays, ministries that it provides within the life of a believer. It's going to describe how it is that we triumph over sin, how we are victorious as believers. But it all hinges on this one phrase at the end of Romans 8, 4, that all of this would happen in those of us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We need to know what that means and what that looks like and how it actually works. And so what does this passage mean for us? I want to offer three implications or three truths that uh, are true, not only because of Romans 8, 1 to 4, but that we see about the Holy Spirit and about holiness in all of Scripture. The first is that holiness is an atonement purpose. We would typically talk about the atonement and stop at forgiveness. Yes, Jesus died that we might be justified, but we cannot be unaware that he also died that we might be sanctified. Look at the way Titus 2.14 describes this. He gave himself for us 
to redeem us for all lawlessness, that's justification, and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good. That is our sanctification. Jesus died for both, to redeem us and to cleanse us, to justify us and to sanctify us. In the garden, God created Adam and Eve so that they would be two people who bear his image for his glory. They were to be multiplied, to be multiplied, to be fruitful and to multiply in order that the world would be full of people who bear God's image for his glory. After the entrance of sin, God makes a covenant with the Israelite people for a reason, that there would be this separate group of people who bear God's image for his glory in a broken world. Jesus goes to the cross in order to secure for God a people who would bear his image in a broken world for his glory. And in sending his spirit, God makes it possible for that to happen in a way that has not been the case up to this point. Romans 7 says you can't achieve this by just trying to follow the law and the commands. Romans chapter 8 says it can be achieved in you thanks to the presence of the Holy Spirit a separate people who would bear God's image for his glory in a broken world. That's been secured for you on the cross. It was a purpose of the atonement. You got two guarantees when you received the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The first guarantee you got was forgiveness. We accept that readily. We shout that from the rooftops, right? We want people to know of the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. But you got a second thing when you receive the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ. You got the Holy Spirit and his power and his work inside of you, molding you into the image of God. Implication number two, holiness consists in fulfilling the law. We've been freed from the condemnation of the law in order that we might become obedient free men and free women who humbly uphold the law. But there's a caveat, and it requires that we do a very brief English lesson. And so uh, if you hate English, you hated English in high school and in college, bear with me for two minutes. I promise we'll go fast. Here's what Romans 8, 4 says that the son was sent as a sin offering to condemn sin. He was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us. Note the tense of that statement. It will be fulfilled in you. It's written in passive voice. When something is written in passive voice, it means that there's a subject, but something is happening to it. Something acts upon it and In any passive voice sentence, there's what's called a transitive action verb, okay? Wake back up. You went to sleep. There's something that's called a transitive action verb. That is the thing that's happening to the subject. And in this case, what's happening is that something is being fulfilled. It's being fulfilled in you. It happens inside of you. It happens to you. And if you're passive in it, it means something else has to be active. Holiness bearing the image of God, being sanctified absolutely means that we humbly uphold the law, not as a means of our justification, but as a fruit of our justification. And the caveat is, it happens in you, to you, by what is the third meaning here, that holiness is the Holy Spirit's work. It's not your work. 
It requires you to give effort. It requires you to work. But first and foremost, holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables it, directs it, sustains it, animates it, brings it to life inside of you, makes it possible for it to happen inside the life of every single believer. Law obedience is not the root of our justification. We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Law obedience is not the means by which we are sanctified. The Holy Spirit is the means by which we are sanctified. Specifically, this passage tells us we need to walk in accordance with the Holy Spirit. We need to know what that looks like. The Holy Spirit inside every single believer sanctifying us, empowering that work inside of us, making it so that the law is fulfilled in us. What does it mean to walk in accordance with that? So what are the applications here? We have to figure out what this actually looks like. How do we walk according to the Spirit in such a way that we give the Holy Spirit sufficient space to do the transformative work of sanctification inside of us? Thankfully, we're just going to get started at the tip of the iceberg here this morning because Romans 8 is all about what this looks like. But I want to point out just four short kind of beginning points of application for what it looks like to walk in the Holy Spirit. Here's the first one. We need to understand the magnitude of the indwelling. We need to understand the magnitude of the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, there are two things we kind of talk about. There was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. There's an indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of every believer. If you were to grab your Bible and read through the Old Testament with one question in mind that framed your reading, that question being, who has the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? What you would find is that kings, some priests, some prophets, some judges, they're the ones who have the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament that there are these special signs of God's grace where he pours out his spirit on an individual in order that that individual might fulfill God's purposes in and through their life. They have the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus dies and he resurrects. And about a month and a half later, Pentecost happens. And what happens at Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit is poured out. There's an outpouring of that. And now in the New Testament, who has the Holy Spirit? Every single believer. Every single person who receives the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit within them. This special sign of God's grace that sets us apart and empowers us to do his work in the world. And that work begins with bearing his image. That's the first thing the Holy Spirit wants to do in the life of a believer is mold you into the image of Christ. Each and every one of us has that spirit inside of us. It was outpoured by God at Pentecost, and now the Spirit indwells each and every person who is a follower of Christ. And there ought to be a certain gravity to that. We need to understand the magnitude of that. The third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, dwells inside you. That is significant. The same Spirit that hovered over the surface of the waters in Genesis chapter one and carried out God's creation of the world, that Holy Spirit with all of that power dwells inside you. 
If I were to give you a nickel, tell you to walk six miles across New York City at peak busyness, rush hour, to deliver that nickel to someone else, you'd slide it into your pocket. You would think, no big deal. You wouldn't be worried about someone picking your pocket. You wouldn't be worried about losing it because let's say you did lose it or it did get stolen. You'd look around at the subway station, find another nickel, and hand it to the person that you were supposed to give it to. Now, if I gave you a million dollars in $10 bills and I told them, I told you to cram them into your pockets and walk the same six miles across New York City at peak busyness in order to deliver the million dollars to that same person, everything about the way you approach that trip would change. You'd be fully aware of just what is in your pockets just how valuable it is, and the fact that should you lose it or should it be stolen, you're not just going to bend down and pick up another million dollars off the subway floor and deliver it to the person who is supposed to have it. You would change the route that you took. You would change the way that you walked. You'd probably do different stuff with your hands and with your eyes and with your feet as a result of having the million dollars. You have the third person of the Holy Spirit inside of you, and we often treat it very cavalier. Like it just doesn't matter. It's not that important. The same Holy Spirit who came rushing out at Pentecost, that Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And we can't treat it like it doesn't matter. We can't treat it as if it's not important or, if it's not our, or as if it's not powerful. In the Old Testament, there are two places where the presence of the Lord dwelled. Early in the Old Testament history, while the Israelites are wandering around the wilderness trying to go into the promised land, the, Holy, or the presence of the Lord dwelled in the Ark of the Covenant. And they had this tent that they would set up called the tabernacle. And whenever they came to rest, the Israelites would set up that tent and they'd put the Ark inside there and the presence of the Lord would descend in this cloud and it would sit there in the tabernacle. The outside of the tabernacle, the materials that built it were the exact same materials used to build all the tents that the Israelites carried around so that they could sleep in. It looked pretty much the same from the outside. Inside, it was totally different. No one would have approached that tabernacle the same way they approached the tent that they regularly lived in. They got hungry, they needed a snack. You wouldn't just waltz up to the tabernacle like you were gonna grab whatever was available, sit down and eat it and it was gonna be no big deal. You would never do that because the presence of the Lord is inside there. You would treat it incredibly differently. The presence of the Lord later in Israel's history dwelled in the temple. Everything inside the temple was set apart for the Lord. The people that worked there, the tools that they used, the things that they did, the way they had to clean themselves and prepare themselves just to go into the place. Why? Because the presence of the Lord was there. The presence of the Lord is inside you. It should change everything about the way that you live, the way that we act, the way that we think, the way that we speak. Everything is set aside for him. Every last bit of us, every talent, every thought, every desire, every action, every word that we speak, each person who's been saved by Christ has had a definitive moment in which they went from lost to found, from under wrath to under grace. Similarly, each person who's placed their faith in Christ and received God's grace should have definitive moments of surrender. 
one of the things the Holy Spirit does within the life of a believer is that it illuminates for us places where our life does not align with the image of God. It illuminates for us places where we need greater surrender. And as the Holy Spirit does that, there should be definitive moments of submission to him. That's in response to the magnitude of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. I want to offer a real-world example of this. It comes from a man named Walter Lewis Wilson. He was a doctor at the beginning of the 20th century who was agonizing and frustrated over his fruitless efforts at witnessing for Christ. One day in 1913, a French missionary was visiting his home and asked the following question, Who is the Holy Spirit to you? Wilson gathered that it probably wasn't a rhetorical question, and so he answered the following way, Well, he is one of the persons of the Godhead, the teacher, guide, and third person of the Trinity. He offered a textbook answer. But his answer wasn't what the missionary was looking for. No, you haven't answered my question, this missionary responded. Who is the Holy Spirit to you? Wilson responded the only way he knew how, with honesty. He said, well, he is nothing to me. I have no contact with him and could get along quite well without him. At the beginning of the next year, on January 14, 1914, Wilson attended a message given by James M. Gray. He's, he was a pastor and a future president of Moody Bible Institute. And as Gray was preaching through Romans 12, he made the following statement, that God gives you the indescribable honor of presenting your bodies to the Holy Spirit to be his dwelling place on earth. Wilson returned to his house and lay prostrate on the carpet. There, in the late hours of the night, he said, My Lord, I have treated your spirit like a servant. When I wanted you, I called for you. Now I give you this body of mine from head to toe, or from head to feet. I give you my hands, my limbs, my eyes and lips, my brain. You may send this body to Africa or lay it on a bed with cancer. It is your body from this moment on. That is the magnitude of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Lord dwells inside of you. Our response to that should be one of complete submission. Application number two, do not settle for a changed life. Allow for an exchanged life. The goal of sanctification is not some enhanced version of you. The goal is not self-help or self-actualization. In fact, that's a cheap substitute and a disappointing diminishing of what God is doing inside the life of every believer. He is after total transformation. He wants an exchange of your life for the life of Christ. The goal is the perfected image of Jesus. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That is the goal of sanctification. Not that you just live as some better version of yourself, but that Christ lives in you. Look, the world does not need a better version of Tim Fritzen. I don't do the world any favors if I just offer them some sort of boosted or like leveled up version of Tim because all I'm offering at that point is a better broken person. What the world needs is Jesus Christ. 
That's what they need. The world doesn't need millions of followers of Jesus who are just better versions of their broken self. They need Jesus, perfect Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit dwells inside each and every one of us to make that possible. That life is in you. It was a gift you received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We need to understand the magnitude of that, submit to it, and then allow for our life to be exchanged. On the cross, an exchange happened. Jesus Christ took your sin in your place. In your life, an exchange should happen. Jesus Christ should live your life in your place. That's what the Holy Spirit does inside of us. Application number three, embrace the life of Christ. Don't merely merely settle for picking his fruit. John 15, five says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Here's what we are often guilty of. I know I am. We see, for example, that we are impatient. We see it in our interactions at work, in a particular situation in life, in a relationship, in our parenting, We see we're impatient. We understand that scripture has called us to be patient people. That Galatians has told us that one of the fruits of the spirit is patience. And so we think to ourselves, I need to grasp for that fruit. I need to try to reach over to that vine and pick off patience so that I can have it in my life. But if you've ever worked with fruit before, You go to the tree and you pick it off or you get those bananas from the store. As soon as they're separated from the tree, what's happening to them? They're dying, right? You reach over and just want to pick that fruit off the tree. I need a little bit of patience, so I'm going to go over to the Jesus tree and try to grab myself some patience and just make that come to life within me. It's going to initially die. Your flesh will overpower that. I'm supposed to be patient. I'll just try to be patient. That's Romans 7, 14 to 25. You can't do it. You cannot do it perfectly. What you can do is embrace the life of Christ. What we need in that moment of impatience is not a more patient version of Tim Fritzen. That's still imperfect patience. What we need is the perfectly patient presence of Jesus Christ. What you need in your moments of anger is not a less angry version of yourself. What you need is the perfect kindness of Christ. What you need in your moments of being abrasive is not a less abrasive version of yourself, but a perfectly gentle disposition of Christ. We don't just need the fruit. We need the entire person. We need all of Christ. Embrace the fullness of his life within you. It is there, but we've got to yield ourselves to it. We need to stop hoping for just an improved life and start allowing our life to be exchanged for his. We need to stop grasping after his fruit and embracing the reality of his life within us. And then last but not least, trust the Holy Spirit to do what you cannot do. We need to stop trying and start trusting. We need to stop working in our will and start walking in the Spirit. We need to let God do what only God can do. Romans 8, 4 it will be fulfilled in you. It will happen in you by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's something only he can do. We've talked at length over the last few weeks 
about active submission, about that being the means by which we pursue holiness and that sanctification happens. I want to flip those words around this morning so we can hear it a different way. Let's talk about submissive action. We submit to the Holy Spirit, to the life of Christ within us, the presence of God within us, and then we act out of that. We submit to his reordering of our desires so that they match his. We submit to the reworking of our thoughts so that they match his. We submit to his view of the world and the people around us so that they match the way that he sees the world and the people around us. We submit to his passions inside of us rather than to our own. And the hope is not to go about our day and invite the Holy Spirit to tag along. That would be asking the Holy Spirit to walk in accordance with us. I know that I'm guilty of doing that often like Lewis described in his journal entry, that far too often I have been guilty of trying to make the Spirit my servant rather than making myself the servant. We allow the Spirit of Christ to walk out ahead of us and then we follow along. He arrives in the situation, whatever it might be, and then we boldly and lovingly and humbly display the image of Christ, the life of Christ, as we join him in that place. To walk according to the Spirit is to be completely subject to the Spirit. And in that, we have what John Bunyan calls wings to fly. I want to reread this prayer from Wilson's journal account. Because so often we're guilty, I know I'm guilty, of the first two sentences of this. My Lord, I have treated you like a servant. When I wanted you, I called for you. What walking in the Spirit requires is the second part of this prayer. But now I give you this body from my head to my feet. I give you my hands, my limbs, my eyes and lips, my brain. You may send this body to Africa or lay it on a bed with cancer. It is your body from this moment on. What we're going to do over the next few minutes is spend a little bit of time uh, in reflection and in prayer. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and they're going to start to play uh, a little bit of music. And I want to just direct the next few minutes of our time together. You might be sitting here uh, this afternoon and thinking to yourself, I don't know this power. And I think there are probably one of two reasons for that. The first reason is because you've not ever received the Holy Spirit because you've not ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ and received God's grace. And if that's the case, that is step one. No amount of trying to submit or trying to live a good life is ever going to be enough if that is your situation. Step one is to receive the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And when you do, you receive forgiveness and you receive the Holy Spirit. Those are two guarantees. You might be in a second place thinking to yourself, I don't know of this power. And the reason for that might be because you've not had a moment of submission. You've not recognized the magnitude of the dwelling, of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and you've not submitted to him. It could be that you've had moments of submission throughout your life, but there's a particular situation or a particular temptation or a particular sin that exists in your life that you are experiencing no victory over. And you feel like you're going about all of life just picking after the fruit in a Romans 7, 14 to 25 kind of way, and it feels futile. It feels like you're just running on a treadmill and going nowhere. What you need is not more effort. What you need is submission. If that's the case for you this morning, I want to invite you over the next few minutes to spend some time praying for that. 
you might think to yourself, I don't, I don't even know if that's the case for me. Then ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate that for you. And as he does, be faithful to submit in response. You might be listening to this and the whole time we're walking through these, these verses and these applications, you're thinking to yourself, yes, praise the Lord. I know that power in my life. Spend the next few minutes praising the Lord for that, for the places where he has given you victory, for the places where you've seen his spirit at work within you, for the places where you see the life of Christ exemplified through you. That doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it just means that you recognize the work of the Lord through the person of the Holy Spirit in and through your life. The band is going to just play some music so we can all take some time to respond. If you'd like someone to pray for you, you can meet us in that back corner over there. We're always there. It doesn't just have to be while they're playing the music. It can be any time during our time of worship. And when they uh, invite you to stand and sing, let's stand and enter into worship. If you want more time to pray at that point, just keep praying. Over the next 20 minutes or so, let's just respond to the truth of God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit within us.